So it's right after the division from Rome that uh, the Anglicans got together in... Uh, good morning. They got together in uh, London and, uh, and said, we really need to codify, we really need to put down how it is we worship together. Now, there, was, there were documents, obviously, uh, Roman documents about how they worshipped. Uh, we didn't invent this, but we took what had been out there and we put it down. There was a man in England at that time, his name was Thomas Cranmer, who is largely responsible for creating what is the Book of Common Prayer. And it was revised like in 1551 and 1556. And they revised it like a bunch of times right off the bat. Um, not so much recently. This is the latest version, which was 1976. Before that, the, uh, the last one was the 28. <laughs> so we're, we're doing longer periods of time. And anytime you change anything, people get very nervous. So the Book of Common Prayer. And I said for anybody that was looking at the literature that was handed out here about Advent, it had BCP, Book of Common Prayer. They're taking prayers from this book or from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer and using them. Um, in the Roman Church, I don't think they, they, they don't have a Book of Common Prayer. They have a Missal which is a regular, it's every Sunday they create a, a, a new one. Okay, in the Episcopal Church, we have the Book of Common Prayer. There are two parts of this that I want to talk about. One connects with last week when we're talking about the calendar and how the calendar is created um, and what the calendar does and how it reflects uh, the movement uh, somehow of our own spirituality, but uh, in, in a way, following the movement of Christ's life and the life of God working in his people. Um, so part of what is contained in here is what is called the lectionary. And I'm sure as a former Roman Catholic, you understand that term. You understand that term. Lectionary is just taken from Latin, lectio, which is word. So lect lectionary is the uh, selection of readings that are given for any given Sunday. We do not own that. The Anglican Episcopal Church does not own that. There is what is called now a revised common lectionary that is shared by the Catholic Church, the Episcopal Anglican Church, the Lutheran Church, and some others. But it's out there and that follows the seasons that we talked about. So that um, the Epiphany season, we talked uh, about the, uh, the visit of the Magi, that being one of the things, the manifestation of God, uh, uh, how he reveals himself uh, to the Gentiles. So these, these readings take up a, a considerable part of our book. They, these, are, these are pages of what readings to do from here, and these are very thin pages, uh, to somewhere around here. So that's all the readings. Now, there are readings for every Sunday, 
so that uh, if you walk into an Anglican church, an Episcopal church, a Roman Catholic church, or a Lutheran church, you will hear the same readings. And the readings are always going to be an Old Testament reading, a gospel, uh, uh, a psalm, uh, a New Testament reading, and a gospel reading. The lection is actually created, or used to be created, and this has changed in the Revised Common Lectionary. It used to be that the lection was created around the gospel reading. The gospel reading uh, reflected the theme of the Sunday. Then the Old Testament and the epistle reading were chosen to try and reflect on that theme so that you had somehow, you know, themes. Uh, if it was a baptism theme, you got water from Isaiah and you got something from uh, uh, Peter about uh, the waters of baptism as well as the baptism of Jesus. Something like that. So there was that kind of reflection. The Revised Common Lectionary said we're changing this in that we think that people are missing out on uh, their exposure to Scripture in, in, a, in a more regularized way. The Gospel readings stay pretty much the same. But now in the Old Testament, instead of trying to make it reflect the Gospel reading, they're sequential. So you read through Genesis week after week after week so that you're exposed to it. Now, one of the things that I always said, because I, you know, had a sort of a, uh, uh, a snooty uh, kind of a, uh, an attitude towards the evangelical church, you just have to understand that you can develop these kind of attitudes, was that, I, you know, I'd heard some of these evangelical church, I've been to some of these services, where they get up and they, they talk about the Bible and how everything is Bible-based, but in your Sunday morning worship, they read one verse of Hebrews and spend an hour teaching about it. Well, you know, if, if that guy's an excellent teacher, that may be good. I feel, and still do, felt and still do, that even if I'm a terrible preacher, if you come to an, a, a, a liturgical church, you're exposed to four readings from Scripture. And even if I do a terrible job of explicating any of those, you've been exposed to the Old Testament, the Psalm, the New Testament and the Gospel reading. So God's got to speak to you somewhere in there. Uh, I'm really happy to see that here they do pick up on that and they do uh, three readings traditionally uh, here, one of them being Gospel. However, they do not follow the lectionary. Just they, they, they choose the readings that work with what it is that they're using thematically uh, for their understanding of the season. So uh, that's not to say one is good and the other is bad. I'm just saying that is. The lectionary comes out, there's three year, a uh, three year cycle for the Sundays. So there's year A, B, and C. So that you're not getting the same Sunday reading every year. You get it every third year or every fourth year. So there's that three year cycle. There's also a daily office cycle. Daily office meaning morning prayer and evening prayer. And there's a lection that covers morning and evening prayer. That's a two-year cycle. If you follow the lection <laughs> religiously, 
and do all of the readings that are uh, given in two years, you'll have read the entire Bible. I mean, that's, that's good exposure, I think, to Scripture. Um, and this is where our friend last week was asking about what can he do to improve his discipline and so on. And I said, well, you know, the Book of Common Prayer offers these things. Because what we do here on Sunday is a, is a, uh, a mini version of the Mass for Roman Catholics, a Eucharist for Episcopalians, Great Thanksgiving. It's a mini version. We've cut out part of that here. Um, we've retained the parts that are absolutely uh, minimally acceptable and eliminated some of the verbiage. That's not the only thing the prayer book offers. I said morning prayer. We have morning prayer. There's a service for morning prayer. It starts off with an antiphon, you know, a, little, a little response. Um, a reading of Psalms, reading of Scripture, some prayer, and you're free to go. Uh, there's a noonday service of prayer, which is even more brief than that. And then there's an evening prayer service, which is very much like the morning prayer. It's, it's got a different uh, uh, introit. Uh, usually it's the, oh, be joyful in the Lord uh, the Jubilate, something like that, that is recited from Scripture. And then Psalms, readings, prayer, and go on. And then there's a late night service called Compline. And Compline is just before bedtime. And again, that's a series of prayers and psalm readings and, uh, and the like. And if one were to do all of the things that are in the prayer book, you would have a full almost monastic prayer life. Almost. Monastics actually have, uh, that would be for us, have the morning prayer, noonday prayer, evening prayer, compliment, that's four. I think the monastics have nine times of prayer. I'm not sure. Uh, we visited the monastery once up in Three Rivers, um, but we did not participate fully because they're starting like four in the morning. So they have a lot more to do with prayer than we do. But for one that would like to develop a, a system and a, uh, a life of prayer, I think this does give uh, some structure. And um, the wonderful thing about the book, and, and I didn't grow up with a book. I grew up in the Methodist church. We didn't have this. Um, the wonderful thing about it, though, is it gives you options so that it's, it, you can do morning prayer or evening prayer using contemporary language. You could do morning prayer or evening prayer using Elizabethan English. What, what suits you? What's, what's your spirituality? I, I'm more contemporary. I have a friend that, uh, that, that's uh, uh, very devout, but his prayer is always uh, in thee, thy, thou, shouldst, language he would never use until he starts talking to uh, his heavenly father. But um, these are good options. They, they give you structure if you like it. There is something in here. Um, it's all called the daily office. 
Uh, and it starts out, this is the right one morning prayer, so it's the uh, more traditional language, the more uh, contemporary is right two. This gives you a whole bunch of psalms to read. Uh, it, it's good stuff. You know, people say, oh, wait a minute, you're, you're using something that's not the Bible. You're using a book and you're following the book. And why you wonder? 80% of what's in this book is scripture. 80%. And psalms are in here all over the place. Uh, there's uh, comfortable words that come from various places in scripture that, you know, that, that are inspiring. So I have no problem with using the book. Um, but, uh, yes, there is, the, the, there is a lection for each day of the reading. Now, if, if, you, if you use this, you have to figure out which year we're in, was it year one or year two, and you have to realize that the year in the church begins with Advent, so they do it's a even numbered years based on when Advent starts, or it's even number years when, when the year is, ah, you know, so there are wonderful resources online <laughs> that you can just hit that will give you what the lection readings are for the day. And I use those personally because I'm very lazy. Uh, but I can, you know, just go right to my lection. It's Tuesday or whatever the day is. And uh, then it will show me what the readings are. And I can click on the readings and I can read the psalm and so on. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, there, there's there's a number of yeah uh, of program out there that will help do this. I have, I use two lectionary programs. I uh, before we got into this whole computer thing, I thought the most wonderful invention was a what was called the lectionary calendar, which was a calendar that you could hang on your wall, but on each day it told you what the readings were. So that's the old school, you know. You, so I, then I could get my Bible out and open it up and do those readings. But there's a, there, there's a form in this. If you follow this, you're doing morning prayer, you, you can develop this habit of getting up, you know, spending time doing morning prayer, which includes scripture reading and prayer, and then going on into, into your day. You can take that break at noon and have noonday prayer. Um, again, flowing on, do an evening prayer, and then before bed, uh, a, ser a service of compliment, if that's the kind of thing. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me is this whole idea of, uh, of the Wesleys. Everybody familiar with the Wesleys? I think we mentioned them last week. Uh, that uh, here are these, quote, Methodists that, you know, I, I, every church in the country that's Methodist, you know, they, they honor the Wesleys. The Wesleys were never Methodists. They were Anglicans. But the thing about the Wesleys is that they had the Book of Prayer, the Book of Common Prayer, and they said, we ought to use this. We ought to follow this. We, as Christ followers, ought to have morning prayer and evening prayer, 
and Compline. And so they created this method of, uh, of uh, this discipline of gathering for prayer in home that, or uh, together. That's where the Methodists got their start. They took the prayer book and said, we're going to use it. Then there were some other things that happened. We started breaking away. We've been breaking away ever since the Reformation. Uh, and I'm not saying that that's a good thing. I think the Reformation was absolutely necessary to rein in some of the issues that were problematic. Um, as former Roman Catholics, I'm, I'm sure uh, we, we know about the sale of indulgences. Well, that's what Luther nailed on the door. Uh, 96 reasons indulgences were wrong, which sort of swung things back into a place of understanding that uh, the church can get off in the weeds on issues, but we need to find our way back to scripture and to uh, the place of Christ in our lives. That, um, my gosh, I got sidetracked. Where'd I go? What was my point? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I've said all I need to say about that. But, but if we as, as uh, people, oh, I, I got off and sorry, my digression was how we keep separating off. Um, it, it's a terrible thing, I think, in the church. And I've experienced this. The Episcopal Church had two splits since I've been part of it. Um, one was in, in, 70, in the 70s, around 73, 76, this prayer book was um, approved. This is the new prayer book, 76. But there was a whole transition period of like 15 years where they were doing experimental prayer books. They had the 28 prayer book. But here's this version. They put it in the congregations to try out. So there was a zebra book and there was a blue book and there was a yellow book before they came to this. And this had to be approved. But two things happened at that time. Uh, one was that women were ordained in the Episcopal Church for the first time in the 70s. And the second was that this prayer book came in and replaced the 28 prayer book. 28 prayer book was all old Elizabethan English. So it's all very traditional. This offered the contemporary as well as the traditional. And we had people split away from the church over those two issues. So there were some, quote, Anglican churches that were founded in the 70s because people didn't like the fact that women were being ordained uh, priests and people didn't like the fact that we changed the book. Yeah, that, was, that was a big change. In the 2000, right around 2000, late 90s into the early 2000s, there was another split in the Episcopal Church and this was over the issue of gay uh, uh, marriage and gay um, ordination. So that's in our church. I know those, some of those issues were hitting the Lutherans at the same time, the Presbyterians. But we have been splitting the church, I think, unnecessarily because of how we as human beings, we as individuals, uh, feel about things. One of my favorite 
jokes, and I, I like jokes, so you'll get this. Uh, there was a fellow that was stranded on a desert island, and he was there for lots and lots and lots of years. And when they finally came and they found him, they, they came on the island, there were all these buildings. And so they were asking him, you know, what are these buildings? And he was going around, and they said, oh, that's my home. That one over there is my schoolhouse. And, uh, and that one over there is my grocery store. Uh, and that's the church that I go to. And they said, well, what, what's that building over there? He says, that's the church I used to go to. Well, we're human beings, and we, we have the way that we think it needs to be, and we tend to then uh, sort of lock that in as our ideal and block out everything else. Unfortunately, when we do that in the church, I think we're trying to narrow God down into something that is manageable, and uh, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. Uh, in Narnia, he says, Aslan is not a tame lion. God can't be boxed in. So I, I, I think that we've done uh, terrible things in the name of the church in terms of our division from one another. Uh, we disagree. I, I think God can deal with disagreement. But we need to be able to be open to a kind of dialogue that's real, and I haven't found that much in the church. It's much easier just to say, you're wrong, I'm going away, or you go away. Anyway, back to our prayer book. This can be a guide to how we order our lives, and if we take that as such, then we are doing morning prayer, noonday prayer, evening prayer, Compline on a regular basis. This also has a whole list of special dates. You were talking earlier about where do these uh, saint days come in. There's a number of those listed in our calendar. Uh, most of the saints are... No, not fair. Lots of the saints are, are, are borrowed from the Roman uh, list of saints, and the Romans are very careful about who gets sainted. You have to have a, either be martyred or have proven miracles in your life. So, I mean, uh, St. Stephen immediately became a, a saint. Uh, Peter, immediately a saint. Paul, immediately a saint. Uh, John, a saint. I mean, all of those, we've got them. But then there were some contemporaries or more contemporaries that the Anglicans added uh, uh, people like Thomas Cranmer that had helped develop this prayer book. Um, they're, not, they're not of the same uh, caliber of saint, but they are models. Somebody asked me about this last week. Why do we look at saints at all? They're models. This is the kind of person that we would like to be if we were able to be fully a Christ follower. Is that Make sense? There, there, are, there are Anglican or Episcopal people that will pray to saints. But that is not common. The, the more Anglo-Catholic 
you become, the more high church you are, the more liable you are to uh, have that as part of your practice. But again, uh, the, the, the Episcopal Church has a breadth of people from the, uh, from the side that's uh, uh, evangelical or charismatic all the way to the side that's uh, Anglo-Catholic, High Catholic. So you'll find in the Anglican Church, you'll find uh, those that uh, venerate Mary, and you'll find those on the other extreme that think that's just pretty silly. So, yeah, we, we embrace those differences, but we can't get things around sexuality squared away. Um, which is unfortunate. The, uh, the saints have, over the years, and, and, and the Roman practice of praying to saints, um, and, and that sort of you know, follows along with this whole idea of, uh, of the uh, indulgences. You know, it, it, it comes into that idea of what happens after we die. And the Romans have that uh, strange understanding of purgatory uh, that uh, that says that somehow you're you're still having to work through all your sin. You've got you're you're just not ready uh, to to uh, enter the nearer presence of God. You've got to work through stuff. And I like C.S. Lewis on this again. Has anybody read The Great Divorce? I, I think, to me, The Great Divorce provides the best picture of what that might look like. But purgatory is not a place, you know, with flames and demons and, and those kind of things. Purgatory, in, in, in uh, the Lewis uh, analogy in The Great Divorce, is sort of this in-between area where you're growing. You're growing, and you're always moving one way or the other. Either you're moving away from God or you're moving towards God. I like that. I think that makes some sense of things, uh, in at least understanding uh, what purgatory is like. But the, the prayer to saints was the idea that we could approach the saint, and different saints had different uh, specialties, uh, my wife, uh, for, former Roman Catholic, uh, has told me that if anything got lost, you'd pray to St. Anthony. Don't know why. Actually, there was a prayer. Uh, she, she, she told me, these are, don't you love it when you can remember them? Tony... This Anthony, you're praying to St. Anthony. Tony, Tony, look around. Something lost. Something's lost that can't be found. Magic. Um, there is that side of the church, even today, that's sort of looking at the magical properties of God. I, I, would, I would put the... Uh, branch of evangelicalism that says that God wants to reward us all the time, what I call name it and claim it theology, 
I think that's magical thinking. I think that's no different than Tony, Tony, look around. I'm sorry. I, I, that's just where I stand. I think, I think that a, a deep appreciation of who God is and how, um, how God operates and how God calls its people and works with us is very, very different than this kind of magical thing that says, well, if I have a problem, God's going to fix it. And, and a deeper understanding of God puts us in a place of, uh, of real humility, recognizing that there's this huge difference between God and me. Does that make some sense? So, the saints, I think, offer this opportunity for us if we forget the magical side of looking at the very human side and saying, there is a person. And I'm, I, like, I like some biblical people. I mentioned this last week. Some of my heroes of the Bible are people like Peter. You know, the big foot-in-the-mouth kind of guy. Let me build three booths. <laughs> Forbid it, Lord. That should never happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. You know, it's, I, I understand that because that resonates. Or Abraham. I'm, I'm a real fan of Abraham, you know. <laughs> no, that's not my wife. That's my sister. Don't hurt me. Do you, you get that? But looking at the lives of these people, either in Scripture or in life, St. Francis, for instance, and saying, here is somebody that had this kind of love for God that, were, that lived that out in an extraordinary way, but they were a person, just like me. If they could do it, maybe I can do it. Or maybe I can do some of it. And I find that personally very, very, very helpful. So, um, I think in that, in that regard, saints have, uh, have value to us of saying, here's somebody that has lived a Christ life. This is what it could look like. And, and in looking at that, we're, I, I would hope we're encouraged to say, well, you know, maybe I can do a little bit more. I don't know about you, but I always need encouragement. I'm keeping my eye on this, because Evan, I have an answer for your question, too. <laughs> yes, I... Huh? Yeah, I will. <laughs> I'll say that for the last. But does, does this give you some... Uh, the, the prayer book is, is, is not a very threatening thing. And it's available online if you want to use it as the lection is. Um, there's, there's, some, the, the, there's a very formal you know, morning prayer, evening prayer in two different forms. But then there's, a, then there's something that's just called the order for evening, which is even slimmed down more. So you don't have to say... The, uh, some of the responsive prayers. You, know, you can use this to modify, to, to, to structure your own prayer life. That's all. It's a guide. Um, when we get into the, to the celebrations of the church here, then there's special things that we do, and we have 
special liturgies um, um, for uh, the, some of the days that we talked about of the church year. Um, and those are all in here. There's an Ash Wednesday service, very, very penitential. Read all of Psalm 51. There's a Monday service, a Monday Thursday service, um, which to me, and this is very personal, a lot of people don't ever show up for Monday Thursday, but Monday Thursday, you're familiar with that, what that is in the church calendar. That's the day uh, in, in Holy Week before Good Friday. And we say, uh, or Glenn says every Sunday, on the night before he died for us, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. Where does that come from? Glenn didn't make up those words. I didn't make up those words. Where does that come from? comes from the gospel. Right? comes from the gospel of John. What happened on Monday, Thursday? Jesus gathered with his disciples. He was having a, a, a celebration of the Seder meal. He was, he was doing the, the Passover prayers, but he did something unique and different when he said, this is my body, this is my blood. So Monday, Thursday, is, part, of, part of that is a remembrance of that very event. So it's the institution. This is, this is the first time the Lord's Supper was ever celebrated by the Lord. The only time it was ever celebrated by Jesus. Recorded in Scripture. So Monday, Thursday, for me, has this wonderful movement that gets you into Holy Week because it starts with the washing of feet. And the church has gotten away from that. But the washing of feet, and there's something very special about having somebody's feet in your hand or having somebody washing your feet that puts us in a place of understanding that kind of humility that Jesus exhibited. And then moving on from there, um, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and then it ends, the whole service ends in silence and darkness because that's when Jesus is carried off by the, uh, by the guards to face his trial before a pilot. So that has a special service. There's a special liturgy for Good Friday. Uh, there's a special liturgy for Holy Saturday. And then everything that we do is a celebration of Easter. Every Sunday. The celebration of the resurrection over and over and over again. And using those very words. So that's, that's sort of what we've got. Um, I know that uh, Glenn is an Anglican priest, uh, recently ordained. I suspect that he's using a book that's similar to this in creating some of the liturgy that, uh, that we use here. But at some point, at some point, it would be 
I, I would encourage him to use some more of this. There's some wonderful things in this. This is a great resource. There, uh, we talked about the lection for every Sunday. We have what we call a collect. It's a prayer. We collect the people. We bring them all together in a common prayer. There is a collect for every Sunday of the church year. Sometimes there's more than one because we're doing special things. There's collects for special occasions, for graduations and so on. And it's not that these are, you know, wonderful, the perfect prayers. There are prayers that have stood the test of time. We have one that we don't use here. This is, this is the opening of the, of the uh, Eucharist on a regular Sunday. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known. And from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. That's called the colic for purity. It's so... When, when I was celebrating Mass or celebrating Eucharist on a Sunday, that's what we would, that was our opening. The people would be collected in this idea of make us ready to receive all that you have for us this day. Now, in the Episcopal Church, I, I like this. Uh, I've, I've become sort of uh, close to the liturgical side of things. There's a blend between word and sacrament word and table. So there's a balance. And in, in the liturgical church, the middle comes at the offertory. That's half time. Uh, and you change modes. But the first part is the gathering of the people. It's the, it's the listening to the word read, and listening to the word proclaimed, and then uh, uh, confession and, and uh, prayer, then the break, and then the liturgy of the table, going to Eucharist, sharing together and receiving from God. Yes? Good questions both. Um, yes, I, th- I, think that, I think it's a whole piece. You, can't ha- you, you really can't have word without sacrament. That's where we are. Yeah, I know. And it, and it seems terribly... Um, I, I, when I'm there, I feel, sh- I feel shortchanged. Because I've heard this, but I haven't been able to participate. I haven't been able to... Uh, respond in any way other than listening. So uh, that's just me. And there are people, obviously, that have no problem with that and they're able to sit year after year and and not ever receive communion and it doesn't bother them. Um, They're exposed to good teaching. Their lives can be changed. But as a sacrament, we understand that there's power. And, And, you know, that's a whole different... Uh, discussion about what is sacrament, but the, the Eucharist is a, is a sacrament that causes unity. 
It's not just a sign of unity, it creates unity. And I've had people in my congregation that were at war with each other, you know, over some silly thing. And I said, okay, we need to sit down together, talk this out, and celebrate Eucharist. Because this has got to stop. And we believe then that the power of God uh, can intervene. Um, Music, uh, traditionally... Where we would, where 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 I would have music, um, what you'd call pre-service, we'd probably do something like a prelude. Then we'd have, well, I would do announce. This this is not normal, but I would do announcements after a prelude because we had a history of people coming in late. Surprise. And if you waited, you know, and did announcements at halftime, it just took up time and sort of filled the space. So I did announcements right after prelude. If you came in late, you missed them. Tough. But it was, you know, so we had the announcements. And then I would call the church to prayer, and we would pray silently. Then I would exit. This is just my practice. But then, then we would have a processional hymn. We would process in every Sunday, processional hymn. And, you know, there's, there's, here's where I said there, there's an irony in God uh, that, that I've come to appreciate. When I was attending that Methodist church, which is this uh, big old white painted building with a huge steeple, right next door was an Episcopal church, which was a, 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 a Gothic kind of stone building with a big red door. And on Palm Sunday, those people over next door at the Episcopal Church used to actually come out of the church and press us around on the sidewalk wearing all sorts of garb and carrying crosses and torches and stuff. And I thought, you'll never catch me doing that. I can't tell you how many of those processions outdoors I've led and been a part of. God has a tremendous sense of humor. I'm just convinced that he really chuckles a lot. But uh, the processional would always be a place for music, and, and, and it set a tone, gathering together in, in that way. Uh, then we would uh, have that collect for purity as we uh, uh, gathered together. Then we would have the collect of the day, then we would hear the reading from the Old Testament, a psalm, New Testament. Then we would have another piece of music. At that point, we would call it was called the gradual hymn. Uh, yeah, well, depend on what was called for in the reading. We never did Psalm one nineteen, no, <laughs> no, no, seventy eight, no, <laughs> but. Uh, it depended, you know, it, it, could be a, it could be a complete psalm or it could be a part of it. That's what's, you know, uh, the lection would call for. And sometimes it called for an entire psalm. On Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, we get Psalm 51 in, in its entirety, which is not a, not a small one. Psalm 23, 24, 22. 22. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me and are so far from my cry? Psalm 22. Um, 
So, the, yeah, there are times that you get a whole psalm. Sometimes you don't. Um, but we would have a, a gradual hymn between the, the epistle reading and the gospel reading, setting the gospel reading apart. And in, in higher churches, we would have a gospel procession. So the readings of the uh, uh, Old Testament and the New Testament would be done from the lectern, but the reading of the gospel would be done from the center of the church. And that was you know, sort of, the, the, the ceremonial can, get, uh, can take over, unfortunately, but there's, there's meaning in that. This is, this is God's word. This is uh, Christ himself, uh, word of God incarnate, in the midst of his people. So, um, and after the, uh, after the gospel reading, uh, then we'd have the uh, sermon, homily, then the Nicene Creed, uh, confession, prayer, offertory. Offertory would always have a music. That that's the liturgical halftime. Uh, but offertory again got sort of misplaced as sort of this is the time we're passing out the plates and you know so we just have to cover it the offertory was meant to be the offering of the church and so again if you're doing high church stuff you have an offertory procession which after the uh, the plates had been passed the 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 procession was led by a person carrying the cross would come forward and they would bring not just the, the, the money that had been gathered, but the bread and the wine for communion. This is the offering of God's people. And we're taking what you, God's people, are offering to God and we're bringing it to the table. And here God is consecrating it and distributing it back. So uh, there's some powerful things. Offertory always had a hymn. Uh, then the... Uh, the full Eucharistic uh, series of prayers went without, though that can be sought. The song. All of the Eucharist, the whole Eucharistic uh, series can be sung. It used to be chanted, you know. Really? Huh? Sure, yeah, you could do that. The Lord be with you and also with you. I mean, so you could, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not real good at that. That's not my forte. But, but, but that's, that's uh, common in some of the more Anglo-Catholic uh, side of the church is the chanting, which takes us back to medieval uh, expressions of liturgy. Um, and then at communion time, as the communion is being distributed, we always had music uh, that was more contemplative or quieter. And then... As we, as we processed or recessed, we processed out into the world, there was always a closing hymn. So we had a lot of music, a lot of music. And the music, I bring this along because this, you know, this has got our hymnal in it. The hymnal has, I know, these are archaic things. They were written hundreds of years ago, but they're seasonal. I mean, 
I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward. This will be my first uh, celebration of Christmas with new life. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see what we have. And I told my wife, I said, I may be going to the midnight mass at, uh, at Grace Church downtown because I, Christmas really isn't Christmas until you've sung Joy to the World, Hark the Herald. Uh, I mean, everybody does Silent Night. Uh, yeah, uh, but just these wonderful hymns of Christmas that just lift you, you know, right up. And, and so music is very important. Yes. Um, five minutes, I got your answer. Uh, if, if that takes care of everybody else for now, uh, if you have a question, ask me in a minute. Your question was about ordinary time. Oh, okay. Your question last week was about ordinary time, that time in the green seasons. Why is it called ordinary time? It's called ordinary time because, uh, because it's associated with the ordinal, which was the, uh, the, the, the wasn't a book, but it was, this is how we do things. The, the, the guide book that was uh, held by the ordinary, the celebrant, would know this is what we do. So the ordinal would guide the, the, the worship, but it would guide the whole seasonal thing. It's what became, the, ended up becoming the prayer book. But ordinary time then is, is meant just as counted time. Counted time. So it's the... Um, it's the first Sunday after Pentecost, the second Sunday after Pentecost, the third Sunday after Pentecost, which is a little, I, I know this is silly, but it's a little different of, than the first Sunday of Easter, the second Sunday of Easter, or the first Sunday in Lent, the second Sunday in Lent. I mean, this is Advent, the first Sunday of Advent. Yeah. I, I, think, I, think, I think so. I think that may somehow be connected, yes. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just plain blah time. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, that's the best I can do on that. Um, and that season is, I mean, the Pentecost, the season after Pentecost is huge. And, uh, well, it depends on... <laughs> right. Advent. Well, with Christ the King. That, 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 that's special. We, oh, yeah. But it's just, we also have in there... Um, all Saints Sunday, which is a special celebration, All Saints uh, celebration of all of us. Uh, wonderful hymns uh, of that. Um, I'm sure. Has anybody heard that the hymn? I sing a song of the saints of God. Oh, I've got to read this. But All Saints comes in November, right after Halloween, All Hallows Eve. So. Um, Let's see if I can find Easter, Holy Days. 
Uh, I better look to the index. I, H, I, I sing. 293. This is, this is a great poem. 293. Um, kids love this, but I sing a song of the saints of God, patient and brave and true, who toiled and fought and lived and died for the Lord they loved and knew. And one was a doctor one was a queen and one was a shepherdess on the green. They were all of them saints of God and I mean God helping to be one too. That's, that's, I've got two more verses. <laughs> they lived, they, they loved their Lord so dear, so dear and his love made them strong and they followed the right for Jesus' sake the whole of their good lives long and one was a soldier, and one was a priest, and one was slain by fierce wild beast. And there's not any reason, no, not the least, why I shouldn't be one too. They live not only in ages past. There are hundreds of thousands still. The world is bright with joyous saints who love to do Jesus' will. You can meet them in school or in lanes or at sea in church or in trains or in shops or at tea. For the saints of God are just folk like me and I mean to be one too. I'm sorry. That, that's great poetry. We sing it once a year in the, in the uh, <laughs> Episcopal Church on All Saints Sunday. But I mean there are things like that I think that are treasures. Um, some of the ancient uh, worship. That's obviously British. <laughs> Did you get that? <laughs> you meet them in lanes and shops or at tea. I think <laughs> no American would write that. Okay. Any other? Yeah. Catechism, it depends on where you're... Yeah, Roman is very firm in her catechism still, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, they, and there is a catechism in here, but it really doesn't address what goes on in our common worship. So what, what I did was part of my practice in a church was to do at least once or twice a year... Um, some specific instruction about parts of the, you know, if, if, you, if you took it down, took it apart and stopped it, did everything and explained what you're doing all the way through, it would be a very lengthy and boring service. But if you're doing, 
here's the liturgy of the word, and you say some words about how the lection was created, how the readings might reflect on each other, the, 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 uh, the place of psalmody in all of that, then that might be one Sunday. And another six months later, you might take a look at the, uh, at the Eucharistic prayer and say, here we're going to look at this. Here's how it's structured. You know, we start out with the Lord be with you. There's this greeting and exchange as we come together around the table. That's why we do it. I mean, and then there's all this, uh, the, the practice that comes with that and the, you know, the, 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 the liturgical accoutrement, you know, that, you know, why do you wear, why do you wear a robe? Why do you wear a belt, a, you know, a rope belt around your robe? And why do you wear that, that stole, that, that necktie? You know, what does that mean? And then if you're at the table in a, in a liturgical church, your chalice is sitting there and it's got a, what they call a veil sitting on top of it. So you don't see it. Why is that there? Well, some of this is, you know, absolutely practical. The veil's there to cover it so that flies don't fly in. You know, and under there is a burst. Well, a burst is like, it means a purse. And that's got some extra things that you might need. And that other thing, that flat thing that's on top to keep everything straight, well, that, that was there because it was a fly swatter. I mean, this is very practical. Why was there an altar rail? There's an altar rail because the offering that the people would bring into the church sometimes was livestock. And you didn't want them wandering up in the holy place. I mean, there's some practical stuff that, 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 that is a reason for the way we do things, and yet we do the things as if they're you know, of this great importance of themselves. And we've lost that, you know, where they came from. Uh, that, you know, that's where we get into the issue of doing things by rote and not really understanding, having meaning behind it. Yeah, we like to, we'd like to explain things from time to time, too. Because I, I, I make no presumption that the people coming in uh, have been brought up in the church. I, for me, my wife was, was uh, Roman Catholics. So she was all the time doing this. Why are you doing that? You know? And she didn't know. <laughs> she didn't know. I went to seminary, I asked somebody, why are we doing this? Yes. When we baptize babies, and we do, or, or adults, when we baptize, after the baptism, after they've been wet, whether dunked or uh, had water poured on them, sprinkled, um, we then take the holy oil and we take, make the sign of the cross on their forehead saying, you are sealed as Christ's own, you are marked as Christ's own forever and sealed with the Holy Spirit. I'm remembering what was done for me. So I, I, I now have comfort doing that at parts in the Mass when I'm in the, uh, in the uh, liturgical church because it has meaning. But just to do it because that's what everybody does uh, that's problematic. But it's problematic no matter what we do. I mean, here's one for you. Why do we do this? <laughs> We're scoring a touchdown. I see it in church every Sunday. <laughs> right? Anybody here raise their hands? 
how timid you are. I, I, listen, I have no problem with this. I'm, I'm, I'm evangelical, charismatic Episcopalian. I'm, I'm a weird bird. But I do this. This is, this is what is called orans. This is the prayer position the early church used, offering themselves to God. So I understand this. This, this to me has meaning. I, I don't quite get this. It's sort of like, you know, I, I'm not making any criticisms. I'm just saying that we as people fall into doing things. Maybe we don't understand why. Because this is, in this church, this seems to, the, seems to be the culture. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, just, I'm just making an observation. I mean, same as if everybody was doing this. You know. No. I've got, I've got a, actually, I, I, my, the church that I had for 20 years, I would have maybe a third of the congregation that did this at any kind of regularity. I had about the same many people doing this. In the Roman Catholic Church, there are places, yes, that it would be, yes. Yeah, David. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that I, I think that for all of us, what is it that, and and when, went back to our initial conversation about icons. You missed that. About icons, is what is it that helps us to approach God? What is it that brings us nearer to God in the moment? I I have no criticism of anything. I mean, I've I've seen the laughing phenomenon. I've seen dancing. Uh, you know, what works? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Oh, come on in. You're you're fine. <laughs> yeah. I, it makes sense, and I and I understand the objection. But that's the objection that people have to the liturgical church. Why do you use the same book and you say the same thing every Sunday? So everybody comes on a Sunday and they're going to know that this 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 and this happened in this order. Well, guess what? Every church has a liturgy. Every church. I've been to the evangelical church where it's nothing but word, but I know exactly. They're going to do this. They're going to sing some songs. They're going to have this reading a scripture. We're going to listen for 40 minutes here. We're going to have a prayer, and we're out the door. Every time they gather, it's the same thing. So, you know, do you say it's bad? It can be if we don't infuse our own sense of uh, 
participation in. That's why I like liturgy. Come on in. Liturgy is, uh, is the work of the people. It's the work of the people. And, and the, actual, the actual word is, uh, you know, it's public works. It's like building a fountain or, you know, a road or something. We're meant to participate. So I, I, I don't like a worship that you come to and you're just, you're just sitting there listening. That, that's just where I am. So I like to have uh, some sense of involvement. And that's, I think, the liter- the, the, a, a semi-even-liturgical church says, part of it, we're going to sing, we might have a responsive reading, or we respond by saying this prayer together, or the prayer of confession together. Uh, those kind of things that bring the body into uh, some sort of unity in worship.